Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys Podcast and upcoming documentary, Visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to have Aaron on the show. Aaron, can you just introduce yourself to the audience and let them know a little bit about you? Sure. So my name is Aaron Manchaka. I was born and raised in the state of Maryland, grew up in the IFB church from a very young age. My parents were IFB and ultimately I suffered abuse as a child from a family friend within the IFB. Okay. And that's where this all, this all kind of comes together. Yeah. So what was your initial experiences like within the, the IFB world? Was it positive at first or... It was at first. I was a kid. You had a lot of childhood friends within the IFB. It was very close knit. We had maybe 100 to 200 people in my church. Okay. And it did feel like a family. So at first it was positive. Yeah. So what was the first time that you ever, you know, felt like, hey, maybe this isn't a perfect little bubble that we're in and noticed something was off or that there was something a little bit wrong? Unfortunately, that point came when it was too late. Hmm. At that point, I had already been abused. And once it was taken to the pastor and brought to his attention, that's when I realized, wow, this, this is not all that I thought. It wasn't dealt with properly, and that's, it was already too late at that point. And obviously, you can go into as many details or not, as, not at all if you don't want to. But uh, around what age was this, did you say? The abuse probably started when I was five. Okay. It was brought to the pastor's attention. I would have been probably 11 or 12 okay. at that time. And was the abuse ongoing from five through? It 11? was. Okay. This person was uh, very involved in the church, very close to our family. 
Hmm. More like a grandfather figure than anything. Right. He was over the house all the time. We were seeing him on a regular basis. Close family friend. And, and this is something I hit on a lot on the show is that predators don't look like predators. <laughs> they look like close family friends, deacons, pastors, uncles. Like They look like people that you should be able to like trust. And so can you talk about how he used that position to his advantage and what kind of how he groomed you and even your family? Because in these cases, it's not just someone who's preparing you for abuse. It's someone who's also manipulating, in this case, an entire church, family, etc. So he was a textbook. I would call him a textbook predator. He did everything by the book. If you look up today what sexual predators do and how they groom their victims, he checks all the boxes. He was constantly over our house, making relationships with my parents. He was over for holidays. And it got to the point where my parents were so comfortable with him that we were able to be left alone with him, go to lunch after Sunday service. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was to the point where my parents were just so trusting and unfortunately naive as well to yeah. what he was doing. It started with gifts, taking me places that he knew I liked, hmm. doing things that he knew that I liked to do. And it got to the point where it started to become affection. Um, just mild things, maybe a hug, sometimes a very aggressive forced hug. If I didn't want to hug him back at the moment, right. then it then it led into kissing on the mouth, the occasional inappropriate touch. And at a young age, I didn't even know that it was wrong no. because when I was so young, when it started, I was so young when it started and it went on for so many years that eventually once I started to get to about nine or 10, I was like, okay, something just inside me doesn't feel right. My intuition was telling me that this is not normal. This is not how people treat one another. This I'm talking like graphic here, but tongue in the mouth kissing. No. Um, and I just knew in my heart that something wasn't right. Hmm. And by the age of, so the first major incident that happened was, I was about seven, I would say, He took me out to lunch with an elderly woman. That was another key factor. There was an elderly woman. He was a widow. He was a widower. She was a widow. Mm -hmm. They were friends. He would pick her up and take her to church. And then we would go to lunch together sometimes, just her, him, and I. He would drop her off to her house first and then say Mm -hmm. that he was going to take her home. So that was his perfect opportunity to have me alone. And on this specific day he said that he had to go to his house and pick up something so we went to his house and I remember sitting in the truck and thinking to myself that I could just feel that maybe he was nervous that Mm -hmm. something off and that I shouldn't go inside with him so I said I was just going to sit in the truck and he said I don't think your mom and dad would want you to sit in the Mm -hmm. truck so just come inside with me so I went inside and You know, I remember the long stairway up to his apartment where he lived above his um, son's house. And I remember just standing in the living room and watching him from across the hall. He was standing in his bedroom and I could see him just standing there staring in the mirror. And it looked like 
I could tell he was contemplating something. And I remember thinking, this is not good. This is not good. I'm in a bad situation. So he came and walked over to me and he said, come here. And I walked over to him and he said, lay on the ground, lay on the ground. And I was like, but I'm not tired. Why am I going to lay on the ground? I'm not tired. And so I laid on the ground and he laid next to me and he perched himself up like very, very creepily. He laid on the ground next to me, perched himself up and started rubbing my hair, my face, started you know rubbing my leg underneath my dress and just touching me really inappropriately, kissing me. And then he said to me, don't tell your mom and dad that I brought you here because I think they would, they would be a little upset if they knew mm-hmm. that I brought you here. And I said, okay. And we left. And that was the first incident of abuse. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't said anything. And it got to the point where he eventually, the last event of abuse, in between it was the kissing, the touching, the just still taking me out to lunch. Eventually, one day, I actually, an incident happened in this elderly woman's home. He went to drop her off. She was, uh, I think she was downstairs, and we were upstairs. And I remember being in this room, staring at all these dolls that she had. And he came in the room behind me. And just something that is something you do with a spouse or a a significant Mm -hmm. other. Coming up behind and, like, caressing from behind and kissing and I remember he, you know, just turned me around and started kissing me in a very sensual way. And that was one of the other moments of abuse. And the last moment of abuse was actually in my own home. Hmm. Uh, I was about, I would say I was about 12 years old. So this was right before we would have informed the pastor. We were in my own home. He came over for lunch one day and we had actually started to move away from our first church, the first IFB church that we were involved in. We were visiting another IFB church. And so we hadn't seen, we hadn't seen Carl. His name is Carl. We hadn't seen Carl for probably a few months at that time. Mm-hmm. And he just showed up at the house one Sunday and it was just very odd. And me and my sisters were just like, man, we thought we got rid of you. And my parents invited him for lunch. So he was going to stay for lunch. And we had just gotten a new computer. My dad wanted me to take him downstairs to show him the new computer. Hmm. I took him down there by myself. The computer was in my older sister's room, which was in the basement. So I was showing him the computer. And I remember sitting there thinking, maybe nothing weird will happen this time. Maybe it won't be weird. And I was showing him the computer and the whole time I was turning the computer on and getting the computer ready to show him, he was just staring at me the entire time. And I just knew that it wasn't going to be any different this time. It was no different this time. And he started to touch my leg, just started to creep up my thigh. And as soon as he did that, I stood up and I went to walk out. But as I was walking out, my younger sister was walking in. But in that moment, I was in flight mode. Mm-hmm. And he walked in and I went to just walk right upstairs. And then right when I hit the top of the steps, I was like, oh man, I left my sister down there. I need to go back and get my sister. So I walked downstairs and I remember walking into my sister's room and I see him and my younger sister standing in front of this large mirror that my sister had. And I could see him with his hand in her pants in mm-hmm. the mirror. And as soon as she saw me, her, she had this flushed face. 
And she walked over to me and I said, what did he do to you? And she said, nothing. I just don't want to talk about it. And we walked upstairs and we had lunch. And then my parents invited him to go to evening service mm. with us. Yeah. So we had to go and go to evening service with the guy who literally just abused us. Those were some of the major things that happened. And I remember that night we sat outside the church and I said, you know, what? we're going to talk to mama and daddy today. We're going to talk mm. to them today. Yeah, no, that's, uh, it takes a lot. And that's, especially that age to, and in, like you said, her just being flushed and like the fact that should I feel embarrassed? Should I feel ashamed? And then you're in a, like you're in an environment where you definitely aren't talking. I'm assuming definitely not talking about that kind of stuff whatsoever. Going forward is a super brave thing to do. What was your parents' reaction when you guys talked to them? Uh, they really didn't react. So I, hmm. I remember my mom into the room. And I don't remember the exact conversation, but I knew that we told her that he was doing things that we were uncomfortable with. He was making us feel uncomfortable. He was kissing us, touching us, things like that. And I just remember my mom saying, okay, I'll talk to your dad about it. And I didn't even know that they had gone to, I didn't even know that they had gone to the pastor mm -hmm. um, of the church. They just went and then told us the end result. So my parents, they went to the pastor. They had multiple people there as witnesses. And my parents told the pastor the information that they have. And pretty much the pastor's take was that they didn't have enough information to do anything. Hmm. And that's where it ended. That was where, that was where the pastor left it. And that's where the snowball effect of getting away with this sexual abuse happened. And I remember we went to this new IFB church. They, at first they didn't know everything that happened. The way that everything got found out was in ninth grade, excuse me, eighth grade, I wrote an English paper. The topic was why bad things happen to good people. Hmm. And I wrote an essay on the things that I had gone through and I remember getting called into the principal's office and there was my English teacher and one of the other staff members sitting there with the principal. And they said, we want to talk to you about this essay that you wrote. And my English teacher was in tears and I told the principal. And mind you, this is an IFB school. So if they did anything good for me was the fact that the principal actually made my parents call the police. He said, mm -hmm. if you don't police than I have to. And that's what got the ball rolling was mm. the fact that I wrote this English paper and my English teacher took it to the principal and he actually cared enough to put my parents in a position of this is not right. You need mm. to do something about it or else no. we have about it. And that's where that went from there. No, that's awesome. It's good to hear that someone actually did the right thing and, and that quickly. What was the next step of that? Was there, did it end up the police, I'm assuming, investigated, did it actually end up picking up some momentum? or? So what happened was they interviewed me and my sisters. There were also other victims within mm. his own family. It was a lengthy process. Anything that has to do with the court system, it seems like it takes forever. He sat in jail for a while. He did sit in jail for, for a while. And then the court day actually came. And I remember sitting in court, waiting for him to come in. 
And I actually felt sorry. Like I felt guilty Hmm. for where he was at. And he ended up getting, there were at least eight counts against him. And he ended up getting uh, a total of six months in jail. And he was let out. He was eventually let out early on good behavior. And we were mortified. I couldn't believe it. It wasn't just me. It was several other people. Mm -hmm. And uh, six months was what he got. And they let him out early because he was a well-behaved sexual predator. So many years go by. I'm about 16 years old. So probably about four years go by. We, it was Christmas time. We went to get a Christmas tree at a local stand. And this widow who was friends with him, her granddaughter was working at the stand. Her grandmother had passed a few years before. And she said, did you hear what happened to Carl? And we said, no, we had no idea. And she said, about a year ago, we got in a really bad car accident and totaled his truck. And then about six months ago, he had a stroke and then he died. And I, I remember thinking, wow, I didn't think justice had been served legally. But in the end, I really do believe that God took care of him. And God was the judge in the end. It mm. wasn't, I, I wasn't satisfied with the, the legal outcome, but I know that that God was the real judge in the end. And I remember me and my sisters just crying, you know, tears of joy because Mm. we know he can't do this to anyone. He can't do this one to anyone else anymore. Um, That was, that should have been the fear from the beginning. Should have been the fear. If we let this guy go, is he going to do this to more people? And I don't think that, I don't think that was taken into accountability. So how did this incident, obviously, it's something that affects how you view everything from that point on and that kind of experience. How did it impact? You mentioned this event happening when you're 16. So going through Christian school, going to church where you've obviously seen, you've seen a good thing happen, but you've also seen just a blatant, I don't care, cover it up kind of attitude. How did those responses impact your experience attending church and being part of that culture? That was just part one. Unfortunately, a part two to the story, when we joined the second IFB church, they knew that we were going through the court process. They knew all, you know, this information started to come out about what we had been through. And no one came forward to say, hey, let us help you. Let us, let us sit down with you and try to encourage you. Let us do some sessions together and see if there's anything that we can do for you and help your family out. Not one person, not one person did that. I had a lot of behavioral issues in this second church. I was the, the bad girl, but I had endured a lot of horrible things as a child that had gone unaddressed. I had serious wounds that were not being healed properly and being neglected. My wounds were being neglected. And just the way that I felt like no one wanted to hear me, no one in the church really cared about the things that I had been through. I was like crying for help in so many different ways. I was acting out, being somewhat promiscuous, things like that. They never connected the dots that Mm. may have something to do with these things that I had been through as a child. Yeah. And eventually there was another incident as a teenager 
I would have been probably 14 at the time. This boy was a few years older than me. We were doing a youth group activity. And it was, it was pretty much hide and seek in the dark in the church. So what bad could happen? So I was hiding behind a door in one of the nursery rooms. And this boy came in and he decided to hide behind the exact same door that I was hiding behind. And he at first just grazed my breast. And then because I didn't say anything, he then decided that was a full hand. That wasn't okay to do the full hand. And I like, ran away and found my best friend. And I said, you would not believe what just happened. And so just totally grabbed my breast. And she was like, oh, we're going to talk to the youth pastor after this. And he followed me around like a little puppy the rest of the night. And after youth group was over, we went to the youth pastor. And I said, grabbed me in the nursery room when we were playing that game. And he said, okay, let's just be mindful of the clothes that we wear to youth group activity that we're not so that we're not a hindrance to hmm. the guy. And I'm thinking to myself, are you kidding me? That is the first thing that you say when hmm. I bring your attention. You couldn't think of anything else to say other than, well, be mindful of the clothes that you wear because hmm. it was basically your fault because of the shirt that you were wearing. Hmm. This boy was, oddly enough, he was an aspiring preacher boy. And he was very much wanting to be a pastor. They would have him guest speak. He was like a teenage guest speaker in the pulpit. And he wanted to be a pastor, go to Christian college, all that jazz. And so when they learned of this, nothing happened. Hmm. Absolutely happened. They played it off like it was innocent. And his parents were told, and that was about it. And then once again, I'm left feeling like, is anybody ever going to give me justice? Is anybody ever going to hear me out? Is anybody ever going to fight for me and defend me when I tell them that I've been wronged by someone? And so that was the second occurrence, which we don't need to compare, but not as severe as the right. first, but still enough to where at that point, I just said, you know what? This is just, this is too much. Why have we not done anything? I got to about 18 years old and I left the IFB. I was pretty much done. I was done with church at that point. My older sister said, Hey, I want you to come try this other church. It's not a Baptist church. It's non-denominational. I think you would really like it. So I checked out this church. I was in a bad relationship at that time. I was in an abusive relationship and I went to check out this other church and I actually really loved it. And I was like, okay, I can do this. So I joined this church. I was there for a few years and then at that time, I started to go to therapy at about 21 years old. Noticed there was a lot of things inside of me that needed to be fixed and healed. And I decided on my own to get myself help because I didn't feel that anyone had ever, anyone had ever really gone out of their way to help me. After this situation with the boy who grabbed me at youth group, because this is very important, because it's not just, it wasn't just the youth pastor, it was his wife as well. She came forward and said, I would like to mentor you. Can I mentor you? So she wanted to take me out to Friendly's and she was going to mentor me that night. So we sat down at the table and the, and again, the first thing out of her mouth was her trying to talk to me about the clothes that I wear. And I said, this is not mentorship. As soon as she started talking about my clothes, I just completely checked out. 
no one wanted to hear what was going on inside of me literally dying inside with everything that i had gone through i was a child yeah i was a child and that inner child was literally i say dying but i don't even have memories of my childhood because they're so repressed mm -hmm. and that's something that therapy helped me get back but you don't get it all back you get yeah. bits and pieces that you have to eventually just try to put together and make sense of it and i just felt that no one ever wanted to reach out and go out of their way to really just show me that i was loved and that mm -hmm. i was loved by god they just wanted to change me and try to recreate me in yeah. their way. Yeah, no, it's, that's one of the, the things that you know, I'm finding more and more as I'm reading about a lot of this stuff is there's the trauma of what happens and then there's the trauma of coming forward about what happened. And you say two, but really it sounds like there was like four because you've got the experience and then being told there's nothing we can do. And then another experience and then being told it's you, like it's your fault. You're wearing this, you're doing this. How did that, I, I am curious, this is just a separate thing, but going into therapy and I think that's so important and I see the value of it. And it's something that I, I've keep saying and people listening to the podcast for this long. No, I've said it a few times, but it's something I need to do um, and finally get checked off my list of things I need to get set up. But was there, because of the IFB background, was there a lot of breakthroughs you had to have to get to the point where you were okay with doing therapy? Did you feel like a stigma? Or at that point where you just, there's nothing else I can do here. I have to do this. Yeah, a mixture of both. I was at my, I was at my wit's end. I, was, I had behavioral issues. I had relational issues. I just found myself really, I was just seeking I was always seeking something new, something I, it was just never, it was never enough. And I got to the point where I said, you know what? I just, I can see this toxic cycle. I need to break it. I don't know if therapy is the answer, but at this point, what's it going to hurt? And you know, with the IFB, I know a lot of people have talked about it there. They were so anti-medicine. Mm -hmm. So high therapy that wasn't, sitting down with a pastor with a Bible in his hands. And I'm not at all taking the Bible away from therapy because the only reason I made it through therapy was because my relationship with Jesus. That was the mm. only way I would have made it through. I would come home some nights just emotionally exhausted because therapy will do that to you. I, I went through therapy for three years, three years. And Therapy was the best decision that I ever made. It was the best decision I ever made. My therapist was a wonderful woman. She was literally handpicked. <laughs> she was handpicked for me to be my therapist. I believe that. And she helped me get through some really difficult moments. I remember going home and my parents would say, hey, how was therapy? And I said, you know what? I don't really want to talk about it. <laughs> and that was okay because... I was learning boundaries. You have to learn this is my emotional and mental health and I am in control of it at this moment and I'm okay with saying no. I'm okay with saying I don't want to talk about it right now. And eventually I did get to the point where I was able to confront my parents. I had a conversation with them. I said, why did you not do anything? And it was a real raw, hard conversation that needed to be had. 
and I have no bitterness towards my parents. I really don't. They didn't know any better because they were just so brainwashed by what they were being told, what they were being told was the right way to go about it. Sure, at the end of the day, they could have made their own decision, but I believe that everything happened the way it did for a reason. I really do. I believe that I was, I, when I was in therapy, my therapist gave me a lot of good tools, wonderful tools that I can still use today in my everyday life. So it was just the best. It was a great decision. If you could take what you know now and, and things that you've gotten to go over in therapy and tools that you've been able to get to work through some of this, if you could go back to yourself in high school in you know, even junior high and middle school and tell yourself or give yourself advice going through those situations, what would you try to tell yourself? I would tell myself that, that <laughs> I was only going to damage myself more. The things that I was doing and seeking and trying to cling to for healing were only hurting me more and more. I was giving pieces of myself away, like little by little, I was just deteriorating myself even more than I was before because I just kept seeking and looking and trying to find something that was going to help heal that wound that was just not being treated. And I was trying to find it in friends. I was trying to find it in boyfriends. And I could just never find something that made me feel 100% complete. And I felt, okay, maybe if I get justice towards my, if I get justice towards my abuser, that will give me what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing that I found is that justice and peace are not one and the same, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I wish they were. I wish they were. But even justice, getting justice, whatever you think justice looks like, doesn't necessarily give you the peace that you really need. And I found that true peace comes from forgiveness. And sometimes that's forgiving somebody that doesn't even want to be forgiven. And that was the hardest thing for me was this person doesn't even think that they're wrong. They won't even admit that they did the things that I know that they have done. Right. But for me and for my healing, I have to forgive them because I want peace. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with them. I'm not condoning what they've done. It's not justifying what they've done. It's not saying it's okay. It's saying I want to take control of my life and I need peace to do that. So I forgive you for that. Hmm. And that was the hardest thing. That was the hardest thing to do. As you've been able to process this and talk about it more, and obviously like you've at least gotten to a point where you're able to discuss this and talk about what happened, has, have the people, have you been able to talk to people like say your parents or people who maybe did handle situations not as well as they could have at best in some of these moments? Have you been able to explain a little bit more and have you felt any kind of closure with or felt like you've been able to break through and help change anyone's perspective on how to handle these kind of situations? If anything, I would say my parents. Mm. I think my parents have really come around. They've come a long way. They really just see things in a different light. But as far as 
these leaders within the IFB church, I have yet to confront them. I've been very, I've been very tempted to confront them because most of them are still in the church. They're still mm-hmm. leaders in the church. And I think that's what bothers me the most. But my parents have really been able to see things differently. And this is just me getting started. I, yeah. I knew years ago that God was going to use me in an awesome way to help people who have been through the same things that I have been through, but it's a work. I'm a work in progress. You have to get to a point of healing. I feel if you're not healed, you can't effectively help 100%. And I think that's where, because sometimes if you aren't healed, you may say things that maybe you don't mean or things that could actually hinder someone else's Mm. healing. That makes sense. So I I feel that you have to really achieve that healing and feel like you're in a good, solid place mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually to really go forward and to help other people and help other people achieve that same thing and see and achieve that same healing. You mentioned, usually I end with this question, but Oh, are you there? Oh, can you see? Oh yeah, I can. No, usually I end with this question. I'm just curious. You mentioned confronting, like confronting like different staff at the church and school and things like that. I guess when you look at, and I'm sure now, obviously we're doing this podcast and you're hearing stories from people who've been through similar experiences and everybody's story is unique, but there's similarities that definitely happen across, you know, states and, you know, even different countries at times. When you look at the IFB and you look at the culture where women get blamed for what they're wearing, situations where they won't take a survivor's word for what they said, when you look at that, the IFB culture, do you see a possibility for reform or change in that world? Or do you think it's something that just foundationally lends itself to abusive environments and abusive people? Yeah, to be completely honest, I think that the IFB will eventually be no more. Hmm. And the reason I say that is because the people that carry on IFB are very much ingrained in the same thinking, in the same fundamentals as their their predecessor. So I think that at some point the IFB is going to crumble. And the and I don't say that because I hate the IFB. I don't say that because I think that all IFB churches are horrible. But I just feel that it's more focused on the physical building, the the physical four mm-hmm. walls. It yeah. doesn't have with the genuine love of Jesus and what that looks like. It doesn't have to do with our little church in our four walls and that's it. It's our rules. If you come in here, you have to be a certain way. You have to fit into a certain box. You have to look a certain way, do things a certain way. I think that is not the love of Jesus. Jesus went out and met people where they were. Mm -hmm. He didn't expect them to come and conform to all these things and rules and he went out to people and he found people exactly where they were and loved them exactly where they were at. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is something that is going to eventually bring the IFB to its end. You mentioned a few times, and I know that's usually the question I end on, but I'm just curious. So you, you've mentioned your faith a couple of times, and I know for many 
who've experienced, especially any kind of trauma within a church setting, sometimes they walk away from faith or they, they just close off that part of themselves. So what does your, I guess, faith journey, to use a very evangelical phrase, but what does your faith journey look like now? And I guess, how do you reconcile it with the experiences you had within a, a church setting? Thankfully, I was able to separate the two. Some people, some people, I feel like when you first join the IFB, especially if you if you haven't grown up in the IFB, you feel so connected to the people within the IFB. It's almost like God and the people within the church are one. Mm. You're not able to separate the two. And I feel like for me personally, I knew that the people who harmed me had nothing to do what, with what God had for me. And mm-hmm. I was able to differentiate too, because whether or not I have the IFB or was in the IFB, I always have God. Mm-hmm. And those two things that I just differentiate, we have man who is mortal and who is sinful and who really at the end of the day, you have your sin nature. You want to do what's best for you, uh, whether they admit that or not. And then you have God who is all for you, no matter where you are, no matter what church you're in, no matter where you are at in life, he is always for you. So for me, no matter what I was doing, I always felt that God was there with me. I, I never felt abandoned by him. I felt abandoned by everybody else. I felt neglected by everybody else. But never once did I say, God, I don't feel like you're here. I don't feel like you're here with me. I, I knew he was there. Even right. in the moments where I did feel alone, I knew that I wasn't alone. And unfortunately, also, I feel that may have to do with IFB bringing, upbringing because I never knew anything but God. Mm-hmm. I never knew anything without God. So my heart is really for people who never really had a genuine relationship with God because you could be in the IFB church. And that was my problem growing up in the IFB church. Once I left, I realized that I did not have a genuine relationship with right. God at all. I knew so much about God. I knew so much about the Bible. I knew the verses. I knew the cute little phrases and all that stuff, but I didn't actually have a genuine relationship with God. And I think that is also the problem is people leave the IFB, not even knowing who God really is. That's unfortunate. That says a lot about the IFB. Why do you not feel the mm-hmm. love of Jesus once, even when you leave? So my encouragement would be, even if you're not in the IFB, to still seek out God and to seek out what he just, and challenge him. I would even say that. I would dare to say challenge him. I mean, IFB would probably cry if they heard me say that. But I think God wants us to say, you know what, God, I don't know if you're really there. But will you just show me? Give me a sign. Do mm-hmm. you know? Can you please just show me that you're here with me? And I honestly believe that if you genuinely believe that in your heart, and you really say that with all your heart, I know that he will come and find you where you're at, no matter where you and no matter what situation you're at. Yeah, yeah I was curious about that. And I, I think it's, I agree with you coming out of the IFB. I spent 20, well, I, mean, I spent 18 years before I initially left. Uh, long story, I ended up back in it for about a year and a half, but, but 18 years, I went through kindergarten through high school. And even before that, like I was in diapers at the IFB church and I was there seven days a week. And 
you know, when I graduated and I left home for the first time, I sat there thinking like, there's so much I don't know that I feel like I should have learned in this 18 year intensive period of my life. And I didn't know who God really was. I didn't know what his character was. I thought he was angry when I did something bad and I made him smile when I served in an extra ministry. It was a very upside down view. And it does. I just had a conversation just before this with someone who's, they're not sure where they even stand as far as like faith goes or God or, but I think it's important to go through that experience of figuring out what is truth, what is, but it's hard when you're in a culture of so much deceit and weird structure and power dynamics. And it can be very hard to separate God from that. And I think that's unfortunate. It's just a, it's just a sad reality is it shuts Mm -hmm. off a lot of people from having any spiritual side whatsoever. And I don't think, I don't think that's how it should be. I really don't. And I think that in and of itself just shows the fault within the IFB church, because if you can't show people the genuine love of Jesus, just by going to Walmart and are going to the gas station, wherever you're at, wherever you are, if you can't show me or show me that you have a relationship with God, it's just, it really is. It's. I appreciate you sharing your story. And I know, I know you said it's just the beginning and I think this is a big, I know this is a big step and sharing in a public forum like this is not easy, but I know this is going to help a lot of people because there's, there's plenty of people who, resonate to some aspect of this story and it's the bittersweet truth of this show the fact that people listen means that there's people who resonate with these kind of sad you know stories but also i think that you're a picture of hope there is chance for not restoring yourself healing you can't make that period of your life go away but you can grow and get stronger and you can at the end of the day you can win And I think you show that very clearly in your story. And so I appreciate you coming on and sharing that. And I know for a fact that it's going to help a lot of people who listen, who uh, find themselves in the same positions. And I hope there's people listening who maybe aren't even at the step of admitting that something happened, that maybe people who haven't made the step of let's tell mom and dad, or let's tell this person, or let's tell my husband or whatever that is. I hope this helps them understand like there is something beyond the pain they're feeling right in that moment. But but thank you again. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me and thank you for what you do. It's necessary. It's needed. And I'm just, I'm so glad that you're able to reach out and touch a lot of people. I always felt, man, I feel like I'm the only one. Mm-hmm. So it's nice. My One of my friends referred me to your Facebook page and I mm-hmm. said, wow, I feel like I'm a part of something now because I know that it's not just me. Yeah. <laughs> There's many other people just like me in similar situations. So what you're doing is a beautiful thing and you are appreciated for what you're doing. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.